Section 47 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 2, Part 3. Next day they did almost the same again. He found Corinne in front of her mirror, perched on a high stool, swinging her legs. She was trying on a wig. Her dresser was there, and a hairdresser of the town, to whom she was giving instructions about a curl which she wished to have higher up. As she looked in the glass, she saw Christophe smiling behind her back. She put out her tongue at him. The hairdresser went away with the wig, and she turned gaily to Christophe. "'Good day, my friend,' she said. She held up her cheek to be kissed. He had not expected such intimacy, but he took advantage of it all the same. She did not attach so much importance to the favor. It was, to her, a greeting like any other. "'Oh, I am happy,' said she. "'It will do very well to-night.' She was talking of her wig. "'I was so wretched. If you had come this morning, you would have found me absolutely miserable.' He asked why. It was because the Parisian hairdresser had made a mistake in packing and had sent a wig which was not suitable to the part. "'Quite flat,' she said, "'and falling straight down. When I saw it I wept like a Magdalene, didn't I, Desiree?' "'When I came in,' said Desiree, "'I was afraid for Madame. Madame was quite white. Madame looked like death.' Christophe laughed. Corinne saw him in her mirror. "'Heartless wretch! It makes you laugh,' she said indignantly. She began to laugh, too. He asked her how the rehearsal had gone. Everything had gone off well. She would have liked the other parts to be cut more and her own less. They talked so much that they wasted part of the afternoon. She dressed slowly. She amused herself by asking Christophe's opinion about her dresses. Christophe praised her elegance and told her naively, in his Franco-German jargon, that he had never seen anybody so luxurious. She looked at him for a moment and then burst out laughing. "'What have I said?' he asked. "'Have I said anything wrong?' "'Yes, yes,' she cried, rocking with laughter. "'You have indeed.' At last they went out. Her striking costume and her exuberant chatter attracted attention. She looked at everything with her mocking eyes and made no effort to conceal her impressions. She chuckled at the dressmakers' shops and at the picture-postcard shops in which sentimental scenes, comic and obscene drawings, the town prostitutes, the imperial family, the emperor as a sea-dog holding the wheel of the Germania and defying the heavens, were all thrown together higgledy-piggledy. She giggled at a dinner-service decoration with Wagner's cross-grained face, or at a hairdresser's shop-window in which there was the wax-head of a man. She made no attempt to modify her hilarity over the patriotic monument representing the old emperor in a traveling coat and a peaked cap, together with Prussia, the German states, and a new genius of war. She made remarks about anything in the faces of the people or their way of speaking that struck her as funny. Her victims were left in no doubt about it as she maliciously picked out their absurdities. Her instinctive mimicry made her sometimes imitate with her mouth and nose their broad grimaces and frowns, without thinking, and she would blow out her cheeks as she repeated fragments of sentences and words that struck her as grotesque in sound as she caught them. 
He laughed heartily, and was not at all embarrassed by her impertinence, for he was no longer easily embarrassed. Fortunately, he had no great reputation to lose, or his walk would have ruined it forever. They visited the cathedral. Corinne wanted to go to the top of the spire, in spite of her high heels and long dress, which swept the stairs or was caught in a corner of the staircase. She did not worry about it, but pulled the stuff which split and went on climbing, holding it up. She wanted very much to ring the bells. From the top of the tower she declaimed Victor Hugo, he did not understand it, and sang a popular French song. After that she played the muezzin. Dusk was falling. They went down into the cathedral, where the dark shadows were creeping along the gigantic walls in which the magic eyes of the windows were shining. Kneeling in one of the side chapels, Christophe saw the girl who had shared his box at Hamlet. She was so absorbed in her prayers that she did not see him. He saw that she was looking sad and strained. He would have liked to speak to her just to say, How do you do? But Corinne dragged him off like a whirlwind. They parted soon afterwards. She had to get ready for the performance, which began early, as usual, in Germany. He had hardly reached home when there was a ring at the door and a letter from Corinne was handed in. Luck! Jezebel ill! No performance! No school! Come, let us dine together! Your friend, Corinette. P.S. Bring plenty of music. It was some time before he understood. When he did understand, he was as happy as Corinne, and went to the hotel at once. He was afraid of finding the whole company assembled at dinner, but he saw nobody. Corinne herself was not there. At last he heard her laughing voice at the back of the house. He went to look for her and found her in the kitchen. She had taken it into her head to cook a dish in her own way, one of those southern dishes which fills the whole neighborhood with its aroma and would awaken a stone. She was on excellent terms with the large proprietress of the hotel, and they were jabbering in a horrible jargon that was a mixture of German, French, and Negro, though there is no word to describe it in any language. They were laughing loudly and making each other taste their cooking. Christophe's appearance made them noisier than ever. They tried to push him out, but he struggled and succeeded in tasting the famous dish. He made a face. She said he was a barbarous Teuton, and that it was no use putting herself out for him. They went up to the little sitting-room when the table was laid. There were only two places, for himself and Corinne. He could not help asking her where her companions were. Corinne waved her hands carelessly. I don't know. Don't you sup together? Never. We see enough of each other at the theatre, and it would be awful if we had to meet at meals. It was so different from German custom that he was surprised and charmed by it. I thought, he said, you were a sociable people. Well, said she, am I not sociable? Sociable means living in society. We have to see each other, men, women, children. We all belong to societies from birth to death. We are always making societies. We eat, sing, think in societies. When the societies sneeze, we sneeze too. We don't have a drink except with our societies. That must be amusing said she. Why not out of the same glass? Brotherly, isn't it? That for fraternity. I like being brotherly with people I like, not with the others. Pooh! That's not society. That is an ant-heap. Well, you can imagine how happy I am here, for I think as you do. Come to us, then. He asked nothing better. 
He questioned her about Paris and the French. She told him much that was not perfectly accurate. Her southern propensity for boasting was mixed with an instinctive desire to shine before him. According to her, everybody in Paris was free, and as everybody in Paris was intelligent, everybody made good use of their liberty, and no one abused it. Everybody did what they liked, thought, believed, loved, or did not love, as they liked. Nobody had anything to say about it. There nobody meddled with other people's beliefs, or spied on their consciences, or tried to regulate their thoughts. There politicians never dabbled in literature or the arts, and never gave orders, jobs, and money to their friends or clients. There little cliques never disposed of reputation or success. Journalists were never bought. There men of letters never entered into controversies with the church that could lead to nothing. There criticism never stifled unknown talent or exhausted its praises upon recognized talent. Their success, success at all costs, did not justify the means and command the adoration of the public. There were only gentle manners, kindly and sweet. There was never any bitterness, never any scandal. Everybody helped everybody else. Every worthy newcomer was certain to find hands held out to him and the way made smooth for him. Pure love of beauty filled the chivalrous and disinterested souls of the French, and they were only absurd in their idealism, which, in spite of their acknowledged wit, made them the dupes of other nations. Christophe listened, open-mouthed. It was certainly marvelous. Corinne marveled herself as she heard her words. She had forgotten what she had told Christophe the day before about the difficulties of her past life. He gave no more thought to it than she. And yet Corinne was not only concerned with making the Germans love her country, she wanted to make herself loved, too. A whole evening without flirtation would have seemed austere and rather absurd to her. She made eyes at Christophe. But it was trouble wasted. He did not notice it. Christophe did not know what it was to flirt. He loved or did not love. When he did not love, he was miles from any thought of love. He liked Corinne enormously. He felt the attraction of her southern nature. It was so new to him. And her sweetness and good humor, her quick and lively intelligence, many more reasons than he needed for loving. But the spirit blows where it listeth. It did not blow in that direction. And as for playing at love, in love's absence, the idea had never occurred to him. Corinne was amused by his coldness. She sat by his side at the piano while he played the music he had brought with him and put her arm around his neck, and to follow the music she leaned towards the keyboard, almost pressing her cheek against his. He felt her hair touch his face, and quite close to him saw the corner of her mocking eye, her pretty little mouth, and the light down on her tip-tilted nose. She waited, smiling. She waited. Christophe did not understand the invitation. Corinne was in his way. That was all he thought of. Mechanically he broke free from her and moved his chair, and when, a moment later, he turned to speak to Corinne, he saw that she was choking with laughter. Her cheeks were dimpled, her lips were pressed together, and she seemed to be holding herself in. "'What is the matter?' he said in his astonishment. She looked at him and laughed aloud. He did not understand. "'Why are you laughing?' he asked. "'Did I say anything funny?' The more he insisted, the more she laughed." When she had almost finished, she had only to look at his crestfallen appearance to break out again. 
She got up, ran to the sofa at the other end of the room, and buried her face in the cushions to laugh her fill. Her whole body shook with it. He began to laugh, too, came towards her, and slapped her on the back. When she had done laughing, she raised her head, dried the tears in her eyes, and held out her hands to him. "'What a good boy you are!' she said. "'No worse than another.' She went on, shaking occasionally with laughter, still holding his hands. French women are not serious? she asked. She pronounced it Francoise. You are making fun of me, he said good-humouredly. She looked at him kindly, shook his hands vigorously, and said, Friends? Friends, said he, shaking her hand. You will think of Corinette when she is gone? You won't be angry with the French woman for not being serious? And Coronet won't be angry with the barbarous Teuton for being so stupid. That is why she loves him. You will come and see her in Paris? It is a promise. And she? She will write to him? I swear it. You say, I swear. I swear. No, not like that. You must hold up your hand. She recited the oath of the Harati. She made him promise to write a play for her, a melodrama, which could be translated into French and played in Paris by her. She was going away next day with her company. He promised to go and see her again the day after at Frankfurt, where they were giving a performance. They stayed talking for some time. She presented Christophe with a photograph in which she was much décolleté, draped only in a garment fastening below her shoulders. They parted gaily and kissed like brother and sister, and indeed, once Corinne had seen that Christophe was fond of her, but not at all in love, she began to be fond of him too, without love, as a good friend. Their sleep was not troubled by it. He could not see her off next day, because he was occupied by a rehearsal. But on the day following he managed to go to Frankfurt, as he had promised. It was a few hours' journey by rail. Corinne hardly believed Christophe's promise, but he had taken it seriously, and when the performance began, he was there. When he knocked at her dressing-room door during the interval, she gave a cry of glad surprise and threw her arms round his neck with her usual exuberance. She was sincerely grateful to him for having come. Unfortunately for Christophe, she was much more sought after in the city of rich, intelligent Jews who could appreciate her actual beauty and her future success. Almost every minute there was a knock at the door, and it opened to reveal men with heavy faces and quick eyes, who said the conventional things with a thick accent. Corinne naturally made eyes, and then she would go on talking to Christophe in the same affected, provoking voice, and that irritated him. And he found no pleasure in the calm lack of modesty with which she went on dressing in his presence, and the paint and grease with which she larded her arms, throat, and face filled him with profound disgust. He was on the point of going away without seeing her again after the performance, but when he said good-bye and begged to be excused from going to the supper that was to be given to her after the play, she was so hurt by it, and so affectionate too, that he could not hold out against her. She had a timetable brought, so as to prove that he could and must stay an hour with her. He only needed to be convinced, and he was at the supper. He was even able to control his annoyance with the follies that were indulged in and his irritation at Corinne's coquetries with all and sundry. It was impossible to be angry with her. She was an honest girl, without any moral principles, 
lazy, sensual, pleasure-loving, childishly coquettish, but at the same time so loyal, so kind, and all her faults were so spontaneous and so healthy that it was only possible to smile at them and even to love them. Christophe, who was sitting opposite her, watched her animation, her radiant eyes, her sticky lips with their Italian smile, that smile in which there is kindness, subtlety, and a sort of heavy greediness. He saw her more clearly than he had yet done. Some of her features reminded him of Ada. Certain gestures, certain looks, certain sensual and rather coarse tricks, the eternal feminine. But what he loved in her was her southern nature, that generous nature which is not niggardly with its gifts, which never troubles to fashion drawing-room beauties and literary cleverness, but harmonious creatures who are made body and mind to grow in the air and the sun. When he left, she got up from the table to say good-bye to him away from the others. They kissed and renewed their promises to write and meet again. He took the last train home. At a station the train coming from the opposite direction was waiting. In the carriage opposite his, a third-class compartment, Christophe saw the young Frenchwoman who had been with him to the performance of Hamlet. She saw Christophe and recognized him. They were both astonished. They bowed and did not move, and dared not look again. And yet he had seen at once that she was wearing a little travelling toque and had an old valise by her side. It did not occur to him that she was leaving the country. He thought she must be going away for a few days. He did not know whether he ought to speak to her. He stopped, turned over in his mind what to say, and was just about to lower the window of the carriage to address a few words to her when the signal was given. He gave up the idea. A few seconds passed before the train moved. They looked straight at each other. Each was alone, and their faces were pressed against the windows, and they looked into each other's eyes through the night. They were separated by two windows. If they had reached out their hands, they could have touched each other. So near, so far. The carriages shook heavily. She was still looking at him, shy no longer, now that they were parting. They were so absorbed in looking at each other that they never even thought of bowing for the last time. She was slowly borne away. He saw her disappear, and the train which bore her plunged into the night. Like two circling worlds, they had passed close to each other in infinite space, and now they sped apart, perhaps for eternity. When she had disappeared, he felt the emptiness that her strange eyes had left in him, and he did not understand why, but the emptiness was there. Sleepy, with eyes half-closed, lying in a corner of the carriage, he felt her eyes looking into his, and all other thoughts ceased, to let him feel them more keenly. The image of Corinne fluttered outside his heart like an insect, breaking its wings against a window, but he did not let it in. He found it again when he got out of the train on his arrival, when the keen night air and his walk through the streets of the sleeping town had shaken off his drowsiness. He scowled at the thought of the pretty actress, with a mixture of pleasure and irritation, according as he recalled her affectionate ways or her vulgar coquetries. "'Oh, these French people!' he growled, laughing softly, while he was undressing quietly, so as not to waken his mother, who was asleep in the next room. A remark that he had heard the other evening in the box occurred to him. "'There are others also.' At his first encounter with France— she laid before him the enigma of her double nature, 
but like all Germans, he did not trouble to solve it. And as he thought of the girl in the train, he said quietly, She does not look like a Frenchwoman, as if a German could say what is French and what is not. End of section 47